I came in as the quote unquote replacement for this property manager that was fired. Yeah. So I spent the I spent the first two weeks pretending that I was a property manager there, and uh, I sort of trained with some of the people that were there, and one or two they're no longer there. It was funny, kind of getting the um, you know, hey, here's how you can uh, leave early, and here's a little trick oh. I like to do. Take a long lunch, that kind of thing, uh, which is pretty funny because you you never get that experience, right? If you're introduced as the other. Yeah, yeah. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today. Pumped to have a friend of mine from Twitter, Brandon Loffridge with me today. Uh, Met Brandon through Twitter a few years ago um, and just been really fascinated by the business that he's building up in Kansas City called North Terrace Property Management that he acquired a few years ago and has already doubled the size of the business managing multifamily units, uh, 1,500 plus to be exact. Today, we're going to talk about kind of his early story and the the internship he had uh, with a few entrepreneurs that really helped give him some insight into what he wanted to do, um, an internet marketing firm that he started and eventually sold, and then really the story of how he found this property management business, um, the process he went to acquire it, and then what life has been like post-acquisition. There's a funny story about his first day at work, which I'll let you uh, listen to. We talk a little bit about COVID and its impact on property management and a lot about the Kansas City market. For those of y'all that don't know, Kansas City is one of the fastest growing cities in the country that really flies under the radar. But if you're in real estate or the tech industry, it's really becoming a spotlight of a place to invest in and and work in. And Brandon does a great job of explaining why that city is doing great. So Enjoy. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on today. I've, I've really enjoyed uh, following you on Twitter and getting to learn more about your world. So appreciate you spending time with me today. Let's just start off with kind of the, uh, the high-level story of who you are and where you came from and how you got to where you are today. So I live in Kansas City, Missouri and, and born and raised here pretty typical kind of suburban middle-class type upbringing uh, in the suburbs of Kansas City. Kind of always had a little bit of an entrepreneurial bent about me for whatever reason. I I don't know why, to be honest, kind of not in my my family in any way, but grew up scheming and doing different little things to to make money. Unfortunately, I don't have any like amazing uh, success stories, but early, early glimmers of entrepreneurship, I guess. Ended up uh, going to the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. The sort of defining experience there was that I was uh, fortunate to get a job off of Craigslist of all places, working for a couple of very entrepreneurial brothers. And they had a little constellation of companies, I guess you could say. Um, And it was they had had a lot of success, and they, I think they were actually about my age now, which is 32, uh, when I started working there. And I had the opportunity throughout 
college to bounce around and work at a bunch of different uh, businesses for them. And frankly, I had like way more <laughs> responsibility than I deserved and got to see inside uh, a lot of stuff that you normally wouldn't get to see inside uh, small businesses and um, really successful small businesses. I mean, they had a couple hundred employees across their various businesses. Uh, and today they probably have a few thousand. And that really showed me what was possible and kind of was the launch of my entrepreneurial career, I guess you could say. What kind of businesses did they own and what were you doing for them? Their big business was a, a mortgage company. Today, it's called Veterans United. It had a different name at that time. They're like the largest VA lender in the country um, today. I think they might be second to Rocket Mortgage, but probably the largest dedicated VA lender. And the business that I worked for was a marketing company that was nearly captive. Uh, it was a sister company, but nearly captive to that mortgage company. And then within that, they were kind of starting a VRBO, but focused on niche vacation properties. So lake vacation rentals and ocean vacation rentals and ski rentals. And so I was hired as kind of a SEO online marketing grunt to do all the, uh, you know, part of the team that did all the legwork and helping those websites uh, rank well in Google. And did you have any experience in SEO and all that before you started? Or did you just kind of learn on the job? I had no experience. Nope. <laughs> uh, totally just learned on the job. And that was really, that was their MO, especially being in a smaller town. It's a, it's a great town, college town, Columbia. But uh, if you went out looking for somebody that had that skill set, and this was 2006. Um, so SEO definitely wasn't in people's vernacular like it is today. So no, I didn't know anything. <laughs> so how so if that's 2006 when did you leave and did you leave to start a business or did you go somewhere else So I left when I graduated which was 2009 and actually the kind of co-founder of that sister company it was called Plus One Media and I left and started a business together uh which was called Growth Partner and the premise behind that business was that we essentially would do uh, online marketing agency work, but rather than doing it as fee-for-service, we would do it for equity. And, and we, had, we had done a deal like that before we flew our own flag with the you know, premise of doing that full-time uh, that actually went fairly well. It was for a niche uh, sporting goods retailer focused on soccer. And so we thought it had a lot of promise. And it turned out that deal that was supposed to be sort of the genesis of this of the model um, was the most successful deal we ever did under that. And typically, you just ended up doing a bunch of work for people and not getting paid because you were supposed to get paid on the back end, and uh, it never never went that that great. So as a result, we morphed that into exactly what we didn't want to be, which was a straight services business, just an online marketing agency, and. Never really had tons of passion for that, but despite that, uh, we were able to grow that to uh, over the course of three or four years to about twenty people and two two and a half million in sales, and it was a pretty profitable little business that we managed to take ourselves out of very early in it, and it allowed us, my partner and I, um, to kind of explore other opportunities for 
a number of years, which was is kind of crazy looking back on it now that I had that freedom at like 21, 22. So you took yourself out of the business. Like what did, when did you realize that's a pretty uh, young age to realize like maybe I shouldn't be working in this business and maybe just be an owner of the business? Is there something that that happened that you realized it was time to parachute out or how did you kind of come to that decision? Well, those, those brothers that I mentioned who were my mentor and also my partner, Nate, his mentor, you know, before I was even in the picture, he's a few years older than me. They were always big on, uh, look, we're, we're owners and we start things and we grow things and we focus on setting the culture and the business strategy and high level things. We're not going to be the CEO or the president or the COO or any of those roles. So I think it was partially modeling ourselves after them and partially because uh, we didn't want to spend 60 hours a week running a service business. Yeah, that's awesome. So you you, you take a step back from that. Um, I saw in uh, your bio that you had a marketing firm that you sold, I believe, called Spread Effect. Was that a second company you sold or was that related to the first one that you parachuted out of? So it is that business. Really, when we made that transition into being a, a consulting business, just a traditional kind of agency, we changed the name and it it had to do with basically our specific deliverable was getting links for people. Anybody that spent time in SEO, especially five to 10 years ago, links were the primary driver of rankings. So if you could, if you could deliver links, that was, you know, sort of the, the golden thing that everybody was looking for. And we had built up a whole, you know, links department, we called it at that plus one media, that previous business, and had a pretty deep competency in building those links. But that service and part of the reason that we were never fully, fully bought into that business is it was always a bit of a, a gimmick and a bit of a cat and mouse game with Google. You know, one day what they say is okay, the next day it's suddenly not okay. And it felt like it, it basically could go away at any moment. Yep. And you had, you made a comment before we started recording. Before I ask you that question, how, how long after you stepped away from the business did you own it before you decided to sell it? Well, and I don't want to make it sound like we weren't involved. I was definitely there and working, you know, in the business. It wasn't quite as good as maybe it sounds where, you know, we were just on the beach. Although we actually did move, to, we did move the business to San Diego and we moved people out from Missouri where we're all from. And so we did have kind of a little fraternity on the beach, which is awesome. But uh, I would say I was really involved, you know, 50, 60 hours a week kind of thing for the first two years. Uh, and then there was probably two years after that where I wasn't super involved. I was still going into the office, but I was typically working on, you know, other things with half my time. Yep. And you you made just an interesting comment when we were talking before. You ended up selling it because you kind of saw it as a dying business. You told the future buyer that was kind of your thought, but they bought it anyway. And then uh, like six or seven years later, the business is still going and still profitable. Can you just kind of speak to maybe a lesson or two that you learned there? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I think one lesson is sometimes you spend so much time in something that you can't step aside and, um, you know, we were just so convinced that Google was just going to totally sort of ban what we were doing, which 
it's not as sketchy as it sounds, but yeah. um, we, we were just convinced the value could go away at any moment. And I don't think even online, I don't think things move that fast. And then maybe another good lesson, and this is kind of pointing to somebody I know that you know and probably admire, Brent Beeshore. Oh, yeah. He has, so he's a friend of ours, and he had a business that at that time was called Digital Talent Agents. They've since changed their name to Influence and Co. And they had a pretty similar sort of offering to what we had. They just sold it kind of direct to the end user, whereas we were middlemanning through big agencies. So they had a very diverse customer base where we had a very concentrated customer base. And they sold it a little more with a PR angle as opposed to a very transactional, like, you know, we'll help your website rank type thing, which is what we did. But at the end of the day, it was the same deliverable. So we undervalued, I think, what we were delivering to people and how difficult it was to go out and do it. And we both, Nate and I, uh, my partner on that business kick ourselves to this day because we probably could still be sitting on it and I, it would be doing fine. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. I've done a lot of episodes. I've never really heard a story like that. Well, now you are in the real estate business uh, You ha- and you own two other small businesses. So kind of want to start with real estate. Can you just describe to me what you're doing in real estate and kind of how, y- how you got led into owning a property management business and owning real estate? Sure. Well, it was sort of a direct response to that feeling that I had in in the uh, online marketing business where I felt like everything was so fleeting. Um, The total opposite of fleeting is, you know, bricks and sticks uh, and rental properties. (laughs) Sometimes you want them to fleet and they don't. Um, But at that time, so it was probably about 2010, 2011, just coming off the Great Recession and being from Kansas City, which is, you know, an inexpensive market, even in boom times, I saw houses that would have been, you know, a hundred thousand dollars to hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars, kind of two thousand six to two thousand ten, selling for like thirty thousand to forty thousand dollars. And they weren't even bad. Like I mean, they needed maybe fifteen, twenty thousand dollars in rehab or less and rent didn't go down. So when, when I saw what happened to prices on on the actual purchase versus rent, it was super compelling. And then having the, the knowledge of like, oh, this, you know, looks like a bad area potentially to people, but it's actually not. I grew up down the road. It's fine. So I started buying single families. And uh, another lesson learned is we really should have gone a lot harder and a lot more organized after that strategy because that window kind of lasted. Uh, and I know it's super easy to say in retrospect, but that window kind of lasted 2010 to 2014, which sounds like a blip now, but that would have been, I mean, I, I know people that bought a couple hundred houses, uh, just like individuals during that time. And now those things are worth three or four times what they paid. And all they've done is go back to the value, they just reverted to the value. Uh, that they were at in you know 2006, seven, eight, um, and it's this is not at all like a phoenix type market. It was a return to a, a rational value. It wasn't a return to an irrational value. Right. Um, so I kind of figured out that I had missed the window around 2015, 2016, 
but I also uh, figured out that I really liked real estate. And since there weren't just amazing deals uh, kind of for the taking any longer, I knew that I had to have a unique angle. And to me, that meant, okay, you could be a broker, that you could have tons of capital, didn't have that, unfortunately, or you could find some sort of a service business like a construction company, like a property management company, some sort of an, an angle or an advantage. And to me, uh, which probably very few people would agree with this, the best idea seemed like entering it from the property management angle. Um, and I had continued buying some properties and I, I got up to about 20 minutes that I was self-managing and I'd moved back to Kansas City in 2014, actually. I was out in California for four years. And I sort of had a, a moment of, um, I either need to go all in or just not dabble in this. So I actually sent um, cold sort of solicitations to a few property management companies posing as a potential client, but I was actually looking for a business to buy. And really, there were only two businesses in Kansas City that were attractive to me because of, I, I just kind of had figured out, hey, the size seems like something I could probably take down. And they manage the types of properties in the areas that I'm kind of passionate about, which now we do not go after, you know, the single family kind of stuff that I was initially buying. We're actually in kind of like a cool sort of hipster, historic type area, most, most of our properties, and sort of strange sizes too, like 10 to 100 units, where there's enough scale that there are some economies of scale. I know uh, bigger operators would probably disagree with those numbers, but there's a little bit there, uh, but it definitely requires a lot more active management than just a single family house that you can check in a couple times a year on. So I only heard back uh, as a potential client, not even asking, hey, can I buy a business from one company? And that's North Terrace Property Management uh, the company that I ended up buying a few years later. And so we had a discussion um, about potentially becoming a client. And then that morphed into, hey, could I just buy your business? And we had we had one sort of failed start. I think that was actually 2014-ish when we had our little failed start. And then a couple of years later, everything came together. The guy that had founded it was sort of looking to make a, a change. And I you know, was there and had kind of uh, unique skills that overlapped. Like I had the interest and the mm -hmm. desire, which first of all, just getting somebody to raise their hand and say that in property management is kind of <laughs> difficult. Um, and then like the next level of like, you know, sort of block by block obsession. If you like said, Hey, who owns that? I could kind of guess. I mean, I just knowing the players and that sort of thing. So, so yeah, I chose to get into it, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, you're spot on. That's not usually the first thing that people are uh, attracted to get into real estate. But we actually launched a property management business this year. Uh, we've always used third parties and it is unbelievably important. And I really think over the next decade as technology gets better and you know the way people treat their homes and more renters than buyers and things like that, that property management is actually going to start getting its day in the sun. I think it's it's the pathway forward. I think you're right. And it's, I, yes. And I, I actually feel like we're, uh, we get that sort of crippled by opportunity all the time because there's so many things. It's just such an antiquated industry. And, uh, so I bought the company about three years ago 
we, <laughs> I mean, all the things that I said I wanted to do in the first year, I don't know if I've done any of them. It's hard to sort of get above, above the day to day in that industry, which was a, a little bit of a shock to my system because I was used to a, a much slower paced day to day where you could sort of think strategically every day and, and think about the, the bigger picture. But I think you're absolutely right. There's so much that can be done in property management. And the nice thing is it really is 10 to 15 years behind most other industries. So you, I mean, even though I'm three years into it, I probably have, you know, 12 years before I really need to be worried about it. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, I was going to ask you the question, how did you decide what uh, business to buy? But you kind of answered it saying there was only one guy in town that really responded to you. But my, my better question is, um, once he had decided to sell, can you, one, paint a picture of kind of how big the business was at that time? And then would love to chat for a few minutes about how you valued the business, how you knew what to buy it for. So the business, when I purchased it, was about 800 units under management, all scattered site. Um, and I said 10 to 100, but the actual range at that point in time was uh, one. I mean, there were some houses, but not very many. Two the largest property, I think, when I purchased it was 40 or 50 units. Our range has gone up just slightly. We do a few larger properties now. It was structured... Uh, well, the acquisition was financed via an SBA loan, which I had um, kind of during my free years, I guess you could say, where I had that other business that was subsidizing lifestyle and everything. I had gotten pretty obsessed with SBA loans and, and buying a business uh, with an SBA loan and kind of figured out that if you go to the right lender, they can be, you know, just amazing, uh, especially if you're young and willing to take that risk of, you know, personally guaranteeing something that's got a pretty big airball. So in terms of valuation, I was lucky in, in that the former owner was very open, you know, we signed an NDA and he just shared all of, all of his numbers and he was very, clean in his accounting. So it was really simple. You know, I think the ad backs might have moved the needle five or ten percent. It wasn't much. And then I threw out a multiple, a pretty low multiple. I think it was basically two X discretionary earnings. And, you know, he didn't balk at that, thought it was reasonable. And we really didn't negotiate much on price. So you close on the business what was like day one like? Because were you once you bought it, you you weren't just an owner. You didn't you, you stepped in and operated it, right? Yes, and I still do. It was interesting actually because he uh, he had fired somebody uh, two or three weeks before we closed, and I <laughs> we kind of had a after hours meeting at the office, and he was it seemed like he was a little nervous to give me that news. He had fired somebody, and a client had just. Um, decided to go in another direction for good reasons. And he was a little nervous to give me that, thinking it would give me cold feet. And he had already sort of prepared the response that, hey, you can go ahead and come in and be undercover boss, basically, before you close on the business, and we can make sure it's going to be a fit, which we already had everything. This was about February 15th, and we were supposed to close on March 1st. So it was pretty unlikely that anything would change at that point. But it was very interesting because I came in as the quote-unquote replacement for this property manager that was fired. Yeah. So I spent the, I spent the first two weeks 
pretending that I was a property manager there. And uh, I sort of trained with some of the people that were there and one or two, they're no longer there. It was funny kind of getting the, um, you know, hey, here's how you can uh, leave early. And here's a little trick I like to do to take a long lunch, that kind of thing, Uh, which is pretty funny because you'd never get that experience, right? If you're introduced as the owner. Yeah, yeah. That is so funny. So the the quickest way to go from property manager to CEO is to come in as an undercover boss and then surprise everybody two weeks later. <laughs> yeah. So so then we had we closed on it. It was March first, twenty seventeen, and then we announced it. It was a few days later, if memory serves, and we had a little meeting with you know whatever it was, a dozen people at that time, and uh, people were surprised mostly good reactions, a few people that kind of felt uh, like, oh, wow, I, I wish I would have known that this opportunity existed and I, I should have had an opportunity. So there was a little bit of resentment there that I think since has, has gone away for the most part. But that was an interesting little challenge for a while. So, so I didn't know we'd go, get, go here, but this is a kind of a funny story. So you literally buy the business and then you go from being undercover boss to the CEO. You had had those conversations with some people about like, you know, how to get to lunch early or stay a little late or leave and go home early. Like, what was that day like? You walk into the room and you're like, gotcha. I now I, I own the business now. Like, tell me just a little bit more about maybe one, how that day went and then how you, in the preceding like 30 days, how you kind of smooth things over and, you know, calm people's nerves. Well, we did. So I I left out a sort of important detail. We initially didn't reveal that I bought a hundred percent of the business. We said that I bought the majority of the business and the former owner was going to be around for a while. And I don't remember how we totally worded it, but his presence wasn't gone, you know, two weeks later. So it wasn't as though immediately uh, they felt like I was totally in charge. It was kind of, I was kind of in between an employee and an owner for really the rest of that year. And and we had agreed to that, that, hey, you're going to stay, you're going to get paid, and you're going to really be the boss on things day to day. Um, because there's just, there's just so much nuanced stuff there. Uh, in a property management company and just sort of uh, institutional knowledge that you can't transition quickly. For sure. Did he have an earnout of any kind or you just paid him all cash up front and that was that? Uh, no earnout. There was a seller note with an SBA loan. You can't really do uh, an earnout per se, uh, but you can do a seller note. Got it. And then maybe just a little bit on, you, you said you were kind of an employee owner for the first nine months was the owner like fully engaged all those nine months or did you pick it up pretty quick and, you know, or did you, was he working hard till the very last day or how did that relationship pan out? It was great. And and we still have a good relationship. And yeah, I mean, I don't think he was there, uh, you know, until seven o'clock at night or on the weekends, like he might've been uh, before that, but he was, he was totally engaged. And I mean, just as a a testament to him, it was kind of interesting when that I, I mentioned that there was a big, a big client that was kind of departing, right? As we were closing on the deal, there was a, a big client of ours was purchasing a property and uh, the former owner actually like rounded out 
the syndication so that that client could purchase a property and it would sort of plug in and replace what we were losing partially. So, and I think he, it had good fundamentals and he probably would have liked the deal anyway, but I mean, it was like zero due diligence. It was just like, Hey, I need to, I told him he'd be getting this. So I'm going to make sure he gets this. And that was a significant, a significant check for him to write. Yep. That's really cool. So you bought it and it was 800 units. Where are you at today with it? Today we have 1500 units. You said you've kind of strayed away from managing single family and maybe one quick question on that uh, for somebody that's listening that that might not know why, why is managing a single family home harder than managing multifamily units? It's not harder. It, I mean, it's just different. And, you know, our space is this scattered site, sort of strange size properties that are higher touch than uh, a single family, a single family home, but do not have the resources to have full-time on-site management. So just, it's mostly sticking to our knitting, but then also there's, I mean, I probably weekly get a couple calls from somebody that, that would say, Hey, I have a duplex or I have a house or I have a fourplex or whatever it is. And just to scale the client relationships isn't worth it, you know, because at any moment, something could happen at a property and then that has to become your focus for, you know, a fire happens or something. I don't want to have, have one property that's pretty insignificant uh, revenue-wise need to become my sole focus. And then, so you're at 1,500 units. Has there, is it just been kind of organic growth or have you been, is there a, like a strategy that you've had to almost double the business or it just kind of organically happened? Yeah, I, I can't actually take much credit at all. It's happened very organically. We have a couple of clients who have scaled their portfolios. So we've just kind of ridden those coattails and that's been great. And it's a bit of an aside, but it's interesting. You know, I was nervous about client concentration before purchasing the business. And now, I mean, I still am nervous about that at times, but I understand how high the switching costs are and how difficult it is to switch. And that generally clients are good clients. The clients that I want to be um, working with for a long time were like partners, uh, not so much, you know, clients and service providers. So those clients don't want to replace us. They just want us to do a great job. So Client concentration has probably actually increased a little bit because a couple of clients have driven a lot of that growth, but it's okay. I'd rather have fewer fewer clients that we have a really good relationship with. And then I've also used it, and this was sort of the premise from day one, used it as a platform to syndicate. Uh, and I say syndicate, I really don't do like real syndications. It's more of like JV partnerships, um, my own deals. And so that's driven uh, probably... 250 units of that 1500 units are my partnerships. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm going to get, I'm going to have a couple of questions on that before I get to that. Just one more question on kind of the client side or most of y'all's clients, would you consider them professional investors or would you consider them kind of mom and pops that might own, you know, three or four properties around town? The latter for sure. Mom and pops. We have a couple of professional investors but even our our professional investors in you know the sort of bigger scheme of things are are still mom and pop kind of 
syndicators that you know might have a couple of really high net worth partners that they work with, and then they are they're full time focused on it, and they're sophisticated investors, but you know they're not trying to build a twenty thousand unit business for sure. You said you meant you own two hundred fifty units now. Do you think about you know, especially because you own the property management business, you know, every time you sell something, you're not only selling the asset, but you're you're obviously losing some fee revenue and business for the property management company. Do you take a really long-term approach to everything you buy or do you buy, add value and sell and go find something else? I'm super keen on holding. It's too difficult to find um, good deals. I mean, the, obviously the, the word is out on multifamily and has been, for 10 years now, and the word is out on Kansas City. So finding a deal that you want to pursue that makes any sense is very difficult. I mean, I really probably only see one compelling opportunity a month, I would say. And then and then you've got to win that. So to turn around and sell it uh, doesn't excite me. My, like I mentioned, uh, I think at the beginning, I'm 32. I am totally bought into not making very much money for 10, 15, 20 years so that, you know, from 50 on, I've just got a massive pile of equity, hopefully. I love it, man. Real estate's a, uh, it's a slow game, but you look up, you know, every five, 10 years and it's amazing uh, what a good producing property can do for someone's uh, life and wealth and equity stake for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, you, you probably experienced this too. You know, you've got a banker every few months that probably says update your PFS, that yeah. sort of thing. And um, it's, it sometimes is, uh, comes at a bad time, but it's, it's fun to do it. And you start to, you know, you do that for a couple of years, you start to get a little excited about it, especially when you think, man, this is going to look amazing in 10 years. Yep. It compounds really well. And the tax, the tax efficiencies are incredible. Donald Trump did a good job of educating America back this summer on how beneficial owning real estate is. It's not a lot of taxes paid as long as you're depreciating and cash flowing. Yeah, I uh, I have a sort of geeky level of fascination with, there's a couple of articles about Jared Kushner's PFS and uh, <laughs> don't care about his politics, but it's pretty fascinating if you, you read those articles and uh, look at his trajectory. Is there any technology or anything you've you've put into the business since buying it? Um, you know, I know we kind of talked about property management's fifteen years behind, but you know, given your experience uh, owning an internet business and everything else, is there anything that you've done that you're maybe proud of that's making your business run more efficiently and therefore more profitably? So I'm I'm super embarrassed to say that no. To be if I'm being totally candid, there might be very minor things, just like you know, going in the cloud as opposed to using a local network, just like basic, basic blocking and tackling, but nothing impressive. That is being accelerated right now due to COVID. I'm, there's some things that we were a little bit unwilling to try in the past that now we are just in the early days of trying. So we had always been a little bit resistant. Um, and this was more from the prior owner, not that it's a knock, just it wasn't his way of doing it, that he wasn't super keen on the idea of self-showings for apartments. And that that trend has been accelerating over the last few years without COVID. But now I feel like I totally have 
the license uh, to take that risk. And I could just try it on my own properties anyway. So that's something we're going to launch soon. And I'm really excited to see how that goes because the nature of our scattered site sort of setup makes it so that it's it's not easy to take a drop-in showing. You know, you got to just kind of hope you get lucky and somebody's available and can run to a property and show it to them. And um, we're decent at that, but it would be pretty amazing if somebody could pull up to a property and take a picture of their driver's license and, and walk right in. So I'm hoping to have that live here in the next month or two. That's awesome. I had a uh, a lady on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, Say Pike, that owns a smart home technology business called IOTIS. And uh, I asked her, you know, just how things were going through COVID. And she said, you know, they've they've launched a bunch of products. And when COVID first hit, they went to all their owners and the owners went to their tenants and just said, what's the number one thing we can build throughout COVID that would make your life better and make properties better? And it was like, there wasn't even a close second place. The resounding response was what you just said, basically, whatever remote, not remote tours, but uh, no, no people involved in touring. You can just show up and tour. And it's been a huge game changer for them. So sounds like you're onto the same exact thing. Yeah, no, I'm excited to give it a try. And it's like one of those things, you know, it's totally incremental and the cost is almost nothing. So it, there's almost, I mean, short of just like if somebody goes in for a showing and just sets the building on fire, uh, there's almost no way it can be a failure. Is there anything else that COVID has presented as challenges or things that you're doing differently, maybe just temporarily or permanent changes? Um that have happened to your business being a property manager? I mean, this is a little, uh, maybe a little touchy feely, but it's been, it's really been amazing to see how well intentioned our residents are. Not that I had a pessimist, not that I had a pessimistic outlook on it before COVID. I didn't ever sit around thinking our tenants were scheming on how to not pay rent or anything like that. But it's been amazing when there's a pretty public sort of pass on at least paying rent for the time being, how resilient collections have been. And it's been a super interesting experience of, you know, in March, we were saying, what are collections going to look like in April? And then the CARES Act passed and it was like, okay, we're good through July. What are collections? Well, what are people actually going to pay? Or are they going to hoard this money they paid? And then, it, then in July, it's what's going to happen in August when this is burned off and people kept paying. So I know that Coastal markets haven't fared uh, quite as well, and, and rents are soft, but rents have been good, and collections have been amazing. That doesn't That's not a, a business practice change, I suppose, but that's just been reaffirming uh, my faith and, and everyone. It's amazing. And so we've tried to you know, give that back, and we're super like flexible to the extent that we can be. We're in a little bit of a unique position where we've got uh, all these third-party clients, and not everybody has the same level of willingness to be flexible, although most were super willing. And at the beginning of COVID, we actually, I kind of wrote an email and said, like, here's our approach. If you have strong opinions to the contrary, let me know. Otherwise, this is what we're going to do. Just didn't have time to pull, you know, 40 different people for their opinion on how we should handle things. For sure. Um, and we sort of proactively sent out a um, deferment plan that allowed people to sort of defer half the rent for a few months and pay it out over the summer. And I think of our 1,500 tenants, we had 40 people that did that. It was amazing. 
That's awesome. Yeah. We've experienced a lot of the same in Texas. Um, people have, have, you know, stayed true to their word. And even with this moratorium of basically no evictions where you would, you know, you could make a case that a lot of people might take advantage of the situation. We just haven't seen it. So it's been, it's been really encouraging. I, I remember the early days of even on Twitter, you know, you in February, the world's flying high, everything's good. By the end of March, it's like, don't pay your landlord. And then there was like, I'll never forget those months. There was like a series of months where all the guys that are in real estate Twitter were like making guesses, like what is the collection of rents going to be in May and June and July? <laughs> and I'd just say I was probably wrong on every guess I made. It's It's been more positive than I could have imagined. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a blessing. You're at 1500 units. Like how do you think about the business over the next 10 years? Is the goal to keep growing that to be 10,000 units or is it to continue it to be like a a vehicle for you to continue buying more real estate? Yeah, more more the latter. I don't have aspirations to build a 10,000 unit management business. I think a lot of the things that I like about our business now, like knowing all the employees and knowing our clients and having my hands in certain things that you would not have your hands in if you're much larger. Those are the reasons I chose to be in this and I like to be the size we are. So I don't have like an exact target on unit count, but I can't imagine being uh, much bigger than say double we are right now. And that would not be made up of the same types of properties that got us to this size. So that would be if we had, you know, 100 to 150, still kind of small, but more traditional on-site management engagements. It's just, I don't want to add another 1,500 units, 10 or 15 or 20 unit building at, buildings at a time. So remaining small, being able to um, sort of experiment with some of the things that I, I should be doing. Uh, like you asked if there was any exciting tech or anything that we've done. No, but I kind of think that there there may be a bigger opportunity eventually that spins out of this business. And you know, this is sort of the lifestyle business and there's a bigger opportunity to pursue because you've found that there's you know, whatever inefficiencies in the make ready process. And so you build software for that or something. I and mean, that's just, that's not something I'm toying with, but just uh, uh, an example. And then continue to opportunistically buy deals and invest with clients and have it be a great lifestyle business. Yeah, no, I love it. Do you have a uh, property management horror story that comes to mind? Oh, man. You know, it's <laughs> funny. I actually, Where do I start? I, I got, yeah, yeah. I got kind of checked on Twitter about this the other day because uh, Moses Kagan and I were somehow got going back and forth on little stories and some guy like piped in and said, it's really not uh, nice to laugh at other people's you know, kind of failures. I'm yeah. like, yeah, you're right. We kind of, we kind of are doing that here. So I, I shouldn't, but, um, I mean, it's just, uh, I won't laugh at this, but the, just the crazy stuff that happens. I mean, in a building that I own, I had a, the sweetest person that lived there apparently had some mental health issues and ended up committing suicide. And I was the person who got the, the letter of what to do with her things. Oh, so wow. that's something you don't, that's something you don't know that you're signing up for. Yep. Um, you know, just, I mean, every day, uh, I, there probably is something every day that would be crazy to anybody else that happened once in a year. Yep. Um, so, uh, just 
Luckily, the, the class of properties that we manage, it's not uh, usually criminal things or things that are threatening people's lives or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, it's more of just, <laughs> you know, I'm shocked that somebody has a, a pet uh, alligator <laughs> in Kansas City. And that's, that's a real example. <laughs> so, no, I mean, there's, yeah crazy stuff. Yeah. I used to manage a bunch of single family properties, uh, in college and which is a different tenant profile, but it is unbelievable what you walk into after a year of four college students living together. Um, it never ceased to amaze me what they would leave behind or in, in most cases, in a lot of cases, they just never took anything with them. They just left all the furniture, left their, you know, nasty clothes and you walked into like this life that they had lived and they didn't even bother to move anything. So it's it's always interesting being a property manager. <laughs> They'll get the call that oh, there's an exciting uh, exciting little dump going uh, uh, to the dumpster if you want to pick through it, and just the weird stuff that they find. So there tends to be fun little uh, trophies going around the office, like uh, you know, like a, recently there was a mannequin leg that was getting passed <laughs> around as some sort of an award. I don't know, it was weird. <laughs> It's like that mannequin leg lamp from the Christmas story that they uh, put yeah. in the uh, the window. Yeah. Are you on the Missouri side of Kansas City or the Kansas side of Kansas City? Oh, that's a that's a, a flex that you asked that. Uh-oh. Uh oh, a geographic flex. Oh yeah. Um, I uh, we're, we're mostly on the Missouri side. Our office is on the Missouri side. I live on the Missouri side. We have properties in Kansas. I actually live like a hundred feet from Kansas. So uh, both, but the nature of the demographics here is is such that Johnson County, Kansas, is uh, where like a lot of the Kansas side lives, and it's a pretty high end area. So most of the multifamily is a bit newer and a bit more institutional. Yep. Why do people choose to live on one side or the other? Is there is there anything like major that would cause somebody to live a hundred feet to the left or a hundred feet to the right? Well, right where I live, the reason people live on one side or the other is schools, for sure. Similar uh, kind of thing you hear about in St. Louis, Missouri, and I'm sure all over the place. But pretty, I would say, unfair at this point. But Kansas City, Missouri schools are you know, look down upon basically, but that's, that's been changing a bit for the better. So a lot of people will jump uh, the state line that they can go to, you know, what's viewed as the better schools. And then maybe one more question on Kansas. Um, I hear about Kansas city all the time and that it's blowing up and that the tech scene has really grown. And I was actually involved in the Fort Worth chamber for a couple of years, just kind of uh, as like a, you know, just a guy around town that was kind of advising and helping. And a lot of the way that Fort Worth is actually trying to model the next 20 years of growth is after a lot of the things that Kansas City has done. And so maybe just a question on like, why is, why, from your opinion, is Kansas City experiencing the success it has? And maybe one more point on that is I was at a, a conference, a CBRE conference at the end of last year in October and CBR listed Kansas City as the number one city in the country to invest in uh, commercial real estate. And so I've just been kind of fascinated over the last year of everything I read about Kansas City. From your opinion, like, why is it experiencing a tremendous amount of growth? Well, I have to assume that the, the CBRE office was uh, 
was losing out to some other local broker, so they had to say <laughs> that or something. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I kind of wish it was a little more under the radar. It's uh, it is a little frustrating when you know you're here kind of slogging it out, and uh, I, net the net effect is very good, but it's pretty constant that you know we get calls and people have just uh, discovered Kansas City and think that they're the only one that knows about it or whatever. But I, I mean, it's I think it's it's always not always, but for a long time, it's been a great place to live and to raise a family. But 20 years ago, uh, the process of kind of revitalizing downtown was started probably 30 years ago, I guess, actually, but really 15 to 20 years ago, you started to see it. So that kind of brought people back into the core a little bit. And then the area where we play is just kind of South of that, a little bit closer to the plaza, if you're familiar with that area at all, which there kind of used to be this dead zone between sort of the high-end old money area and the downtown, and it's all filled in and tons of investment. And there was a streetcar that was built a few years ago, which kind of seemed like it was going to be one of those things as a vanity project that didn't actually uh, get used much, but it's actually been an amazing success. uh, And that's being extended. And there's a lot of a lot of that multifamily and housing stock that's along that line of the, the future extension um, was pretty functionally obsolete. But now uh, with trends sort of being a little bit anti-car and people choosing to not have cars, it makes, you know, these buildings that have 50 studios not just have to be sort of a last resort sort of housing opportunity. Like people are wanting to be there and, you know, people are coming in and saying, Oh man, I can, buy this thing for whatever, $50,000 a door. Can't really find that anymore, but you could have. Uh, and so just a lot of good timing on, you know, arts and culture kind of bubbling up the trend for people wanting to live a more urban lifestyle. And then just sort of being in front of that a little bit, it's been an easy place to, to sort of bounce back to. Yep. Uh, so, Is there any like main industry or any, I assume, and it's what I read, is that the tech industry is actually growing quite a bit. Techstars has an incubator there. Like from a business standpoint, is there any one industry or maybe a company there that's really like leading the charge and creating this business ecosystem? Well, Cerner is the the big tech player. It's kind of a an older tech company, but they're, I believe, the largest private employer but I think one thing that appeals to a lot of capital that's coming in from outside is it's very diverse and there really isn't. So um, there isn't a lot of concentration. It's not like Houston and energy or anything like that. You know, the tech gets, it's just popular, of course, to talk about tech. And there is, I think, an outsized sort of uh, growth in tech here per capita, but it's not as though that's like the main industry or anything like that. There really isn't much of a main industry. There's a lot of transportation, just which makes sense given our location. It's a natural point to have a lot of distribution happen. And yeah, it's just super diverse. And you know, transportation could go away and I don't think Kansas City would really feel it that much. All right. Just a few fun personal questions and we'll wrap it up. COVID has taught me to have a uh, I've never been a guy that's had a morning routine my whole life and I actually uh, developed one throughout COVID. So my question for you is, do you have a morning routine or something that gets you going every day? 
so I do have a, I have a weird quirk that I get up just super early, like three or three thirty. Well, and then it makes going to sleep very easy. I'm just passed out at eight or nine every night. Um, and so I love that, you know, three or three thirty till about five thirty or six when my wife and son wake up. And I mean, sometimes I work in that time. Sometimes I read, sometimes Twitter, a little too much Twitter. Uh, sometimes try and follow that sort of adage about getting the sort of worst thing for the day out of the way. Uh, and that's, you know, you know, my offense time. I don't, uh, I don't meditate or journal or any of those things. Uh, maybe, maybe I should, but yeah, that is like absolutely my favorite time of the day. Uh, my favorite selfish time of the day, I guess. Yep. 3.30, you've set a new record on the podcast. I think we had Mark the close <laughs> the other day that was 4 a.m., but 3 to 3.30 is uh, is a new record. So congrats on that. And I and I also wonder how many people actually that say they journal and meditate every morning actually do that. No, no offense to anybody that does it, but it seems to be a popular thing that a lot of people say they do every morning. Um, I wonder how, how much that's accurate. I have the same suspicion. It sounds like a great thing to, to say you do. Yeah. People like I wake up, I work out, I meditate, I journal, I get a smoothie. It's like, no, <laughs> I think that's, you read that on a blog somewhere. Uh, what is the best advice that you've received either personally or in business or, or both? Well, in, in business, something that's uh, one of those two mentors I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation always sort of harped on was asking yourself if something is a is a ten thousand dollar an hour activity, which just sounds absurd. I have yet to answer yes to that, but I do find myself asking myself that constantly, and uh, I do not do a good enough job of when I say no, then you know delegating it in a sort of process driven way. So if I can start acting on that uh, advice, it'd be a lot better. Um, but it is just burned into my brain. Is this a $10,000 an hour activity? So hopefully I can start saying, uh, yes, at some point to that, but <laughs> hey, it's, it's a good, it's a good self-check. Uh, I think Naval said something similar, like, you know, pick a pick a, a dollar amount that your time's worth. And let's just say it's 10,000 hour, 500 an hour, are you doing things that are worth 500 an hour? If it's not, it's easy to say no, but I'm in the same camp you are. On a um, on a, a more personal level, I think you and I had an exchange on Twitter actually a few months ago that uh, this is probably the best thing that has come out of Twitter. I can't remember. I think you started this thread, but basically the bottom line was, I think I had responded something I heard from someone else was, anytime my dad calls me, I drop what I'm doing immediately yes. because I, I I know that at some point in the future, I'd give anything just to have a moment with him. So, uh, I mean, this is totally in the opposite direction uh, of what I said before, but that has kind of been burned into my consciousness over the last few months. And I find myself when I'm pulling out my phone or ignoring, you know, my son or my wife or whatever, that just kind of like pops into my brain and immediately you kind of toss it aside and you say, oh my gosh. Uh, I was being terrible, you know, 10 seconds ago. That is such good advice. Uh, yeah, I remember that. I, I lost my father eight years ago, and I think you had posted something and you're spot on. It's just like, we don't we don't know what we have until we don't really have it anymore. So I love that one. 
Do you have a book or something that you've read over time that's had an influence on you? You know, a, a book that I've really enjoyed and I've read a few times and it's a little more obscure was the book about um, Lawrence Tisch, his life. And I think it was called The King of Cash, which is a pretty kind of a, kind of a crass title, but um, super interesting guy on movie theaters and TV network and then tons and tons of real estate, of course. I love the family aspect of it. They were a family business. And then I love that he had, you know, such varied interests, which, you know, I always feel like I'm trying to decide what I, I really want to be when I grow up. And not that you should aspire to have like five different things going at once. Uh, but it was just so fascinating to read about super high achievers that have done that. I love it. All right, man. What's the best way that somebody can uh, find you or reach you? I would say Twitter at Lawfridge, which is L-A-U-G-H-R-I-D-G-E. Man, I really appreciate you uh, taking some time to share your story and everything you have going on with North Terrace up in Kansas City. It's uh, It's been awesome to get to know you and follow you and just really love what you're doing. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Yep. I appreciate it. Have a good rest of your day, bud. You too. We'll see ya. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.